your father is about to ask me the question. This is the most important moment in our lives, and I want to pay attention. Note every detail. Your dad and I have just come back from an evening out, dinner, and a show. It's after midnight. We came out onto the back patio to look at the full moon. Then I told your dad I wanted to dance, so he humors me, and now we're slow dancing. A pair of thirty-somethings swaying back and forth in the moonlight like kids. I don't feel the night chill at all. And then your dad says, Do you want to make a baby? Right now your dad and I have been married for about two years living on Ellis Avenue. When we move out, you'll still be too young to remember the house, but we'll show you pictures of it, tell you stories about it. I'd love to tell you the story of this evening, the night you're conceived, but the right time to do that will be when you're ready to have children of your own, and we'll never get that chance. Welcome to The Archetypist. The only analytics-based genre fiction podcast. In today's episode, we're looking at Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. So this novella was first published in Starlight 2 in 1998 and won the 2000 Nebula Award for Best Novella. Um, it's also the basis for the movie Arrival with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, and it was actually nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. And it should have won. <laughs> You're a little salty about that. Who won that, that year? Do you know? I, don't know. Hmm. Um, so why don't you go ahead and give us a short synopsis of what this story is about and then tell us why we picked it because you won't shut up about how amazing this book is. Well, I didn't pick it. You picked it. Oh, I picked it, but you had veto power that you didn't use. So I am the president. That's true. <laughs> so the, the like sort of elevator pitch that I think we came up with was what if exposure to an alien language changed our perception of time? And what Ted does throughout this story is he kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of language and our verb tenses even. And um, you kind of can see the main character as she goes through the events of the story start to think in this sort of circular fashion. And I, and I want to be clear when I say circular, it's not like she's so much in her head that it becomes redundant. When I say circular, it means that if you view time instead of as a river, as one whole circle or in union with everything or things that will happen have already happened to you. And it kind of poses the question, like, does knowing the future cause you to enjoy the present any less? Would you still make the same choices? Could you even make different choices if you did know the future? Do you have the power and chance to to change it. Right. There's a whole free will discussion in there. If you know the future, does that mean you even have the ability to, d to do something else? Um, so just for a little bit more context. And I think, you know, since this is our first episode, we're really exploring the book. We should say for our listeners that you'll probably benefit most from our conversation if you have read the book. And I will say that our uh, episodes are at the very least spoiler flavored. I think, you know, it might be nice to not give everything away. Uh, it tastes for salty. For, Spoilers. Uh, 
for listeners that that haven't read the book, but you you would uh, benefit it for most if you do. Um, but if you haven't, um, just a little extra context is, you know, um, one of the reasons that I included this book in the list of options for our sci-fi cycle was because it is a uh, first contact book. You know, first contact with aliens is a very specific subgenre within science fiction. Um, and so I wanted to look at this book and kind of understand what are some of the conventions and tropes that are used that are really classic for science fiction novels and then also specifically classic for the first contact subgenre. So when you're thinking about writing your own book in this genre and subgenre, what can you learn from the master Ted Chiang? And he really is the master. I mean, I was talking to Kathleen before this podcast and the more you think about this book and the more you dive into the gritty details of it, it's 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 apparent how how deeply Ted Chiang had had revised this book and how intentional he was with everything from his verb tense choices to the anecdotes that the main character tells the reader about raising her child. I think it's also a really great story to read more than once in order to notice all of those very intentional things with the with, with the verb choices and, and things like that that Jacob is saying, because if you were reading it critically for the first time and you're saying, OK, she's using some present tense verbs to tell a story of something that she must have already experienced. Otherwise, how would she know this is what happens? But it, it doesn't quite make sense until you make your way through the entire story and recognize these things that, that Jacob was explaining before about the perception of time based on the alien language and those sorts of things. One thing that I also really like about this book is to harken back to something that we were talking about in the last episode where science fiction can be something really broad with this, you know, really complex world building and those sorts of ideas, or it can be something incredibly niche. And I think that this is an example of a book that is incredibly niche. And you can see the extent to which Ted Chiang has studied physics and linguistics in order to be able to tell this story. He clearly knows so much about it to be able to present these ideas and to think about things that you might not even consider. There's a lot of breakthroughs in the story where the linguist says, oh, thank God the aliens use nouns and then verbs and their language could have a completely different structure. And if you don't know a lot about language, you might have assumed, well, of course, there's nouns and then verbs because, you know, so much of human language does operate that way. But by the linguist saying, oh, good, it it does operate that way. You're like, oh, wow, maybe it couldn't have. And it makes you think to that extent. Yeah. The one thing, just as someone who's an English teacher, like it, it was really cool to see the the hard science of this. Yeah. Like there were some parts where he got into like the physics of the light particle and everything. But like by and large, the majority of this book was about language. And I'd, I would define this as hard science fiction. And it's not because it has physics in it, but because of how deep he goes into the rules of, of language and how far he pushes tense. I would agree with that. Um, so one thing that Jacob has proposed that we do, and, and I think this is the thing that really makes us the analytics based genre fiction podcast, is he is going to take us through an exercise in which he has picked apart the first 500 or so words of the book. And he's mm -hmm. going to tell us what he's found. So what can we learn if we want to write a book that's intentional and masterful as Ted Giang? Yeah. I don't think you can. But I, th I think that also we shouldn't be trying to like directly imitate anyone we should be trying to develop our own voice because you're never going to be ted chiang and he's never going to be you ted chiang is is taken well yeah unfortunately for all of us okay so i i think 
a really good exercise to do. And I've done this. Um, I have it in front of me and I'm going to post this actually on our Patreon. One of our tiers of support is the analyst and you will have access to this document um, in full if you were to support us on Patreon. But I'll make it available in some way to, to everyone else as well. Um, what I've done is I've taken the first 500 words uh, or the uh, 523 words, it turned out, because I wanted to end at the end of a sentence. And basically, it starts with the line, your father is about to ask me the question. And then it goes all the way through to after the scene break, when she finally meets the military guys for the first time with the sentence, he was browsing through the overlapping sheets stapled to a bulletin board nearby. And what I've done is gone through with a highlighter. And for you book purists out there, I didn't highlight in the book. I typed it out and then highlighted the Word document so you can calm down. I've highlighted anytime Ted in his writing reveals something about the character, I've highlighted that in green. I've highlighted anytime the plot or conflict is pushed in red. I've highlighted anytime there's pure setting or description in blue. And then I've used the gold standard, which is yellow, which is two or more th of these things at once. And something that I think that might be valuable also that we can publish for our listeners is a description of, of how to uh, use this exercise on your own work. Mm -hmm. Because I know that this is something that you've done with your students before. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll take their story and mark it up and say, you need to be doing these things and, and you haven't done them. So it's not to say that, you know, your story has to look like Ted's, you know, in the first 500 pages. But yeah. these are things you should be accomplishing with your own work so that you're capturing the reader's attention with your characters and with the plot. Exactly. And everyone's book is a little different. You know, you'll see when we talk about mystery, there's much less description of the world, whereas science fiction and fantasy, especially like they need to deliver the secondary world. So it's interesting how these things fluctuate. I learned this exercise from an agent named Kirsten Armada. You can follow her on Twitter. She said she takes all her authors through it. So anyway, what I pretty much found was that of those 523 words, 152 of them spoke strictly to characterization. And those were lines like, I want to pay attention, note every detail. That's a character want. It's It tells you something about her headspace, her mindset, what's important to her. And also the line, I told your dad that I wanted to dance. All the dialogue, he's really good at revealing character through dialogue with voice. Of the 13-year-old is clearly 13 and not, you know, Ted Chiang play acting as a 13-year-old. It's, it's authentic. I also highlighted when the speaker is talking about the main character's ex-husband, who I will refer to as Hawkeye from now on, is living with what's-her-name. And after you read the story, um, it becomes apparent this woman can remember everything about her life. She clearly can remember her ex-husband's new wife's name, but she just chooses not to. It's like a little shade. And she does it again uh, further along in the story. I think it's just kind of funny. And that was 30% uh, of those first 523 words were characterization. Only about 6% delivered the plot or story conflict. That was, and then your dad says, do you want to make a baby? Uh, this is the most important uh, moment of our lives. It's, it's more foreshadowing than anything. 22% is description lines like the houses on Belmont street or Ellis street. And then a good 30% did two or more things, the gold standard. And that were things like, um, she, she's talking to her daughter in the third paragraph and said, you're still too young to remember the house and we'll show you pictures. And then at the end, uh, right before the scene break, when the government is saying next to nothing about all these, um, ships and what is the artifacts. Right. And then only 11% I have marked as unspecified, meaning it's 
filler or um, just words to kind of link the paragraphs together. And those are important. They just don't drive the story in ways we're tracking right now. So it's just, it was very interesting to me that characterization and the gold standard were split evenly as the highest ones at 30%. Yeah. Can you explain that gold standard again? It's uh, when the author's doing two or more things, like character is being revealed and the plot being revealed at the same time. Or, go ahead. Makes sense. One thing that really struck me about this was in the beginning, um, it doesn't read like a science fiction story. It reads like a literary piece. That's funny. I was going to challenge you uh, because I think last episode you said that you know if this is a science fiction piece then we need to see it on the first page and it actually doesn't happen on the first page if you're not paying attention because you can see the time travel reflections Mm -hmm. in the choice of verbs but it's not until the page or two later when she says and then the aliens came and we were like oh wait it's that kind of story right and actually i i did the math I, i i counted the words or rather the computer counted the words before she explicitly mentions aliens 419 words go by, which is about a page and a half on a Word document. Double space. Makes sense. Um, but again, you know, it's it's not as though the aliens appear in the back half of the book. You right. know, we, we, we expect them and, you know, they're an integral part of the story pretty much right away. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about the tenses a bunch, I feel like, between the two of us. But yeah, I think what I was most impressed with about the tense use was when you start to realize that her reflections in the what I will call the present, which is, you know, the description or maybe it's the past, because when she's telling the story of how she works with Gary, the physicist, to understand Hawkeye, Hawkeye, uh, to understand the alien language, it's all in past tense. And she slowly starts bringing in future tense. Like there's the scene with the salad bowl Mm -hmm. where she says, you know, she picks it up and then says, you will drop this on your head. And all of a sudden she's going back to that uh, second person. And and I would argue that it's actually not even second person because second person would imply that the narrator is speaking to the reader. But she is thinking to her daughter or speaking to her daughter. the imperative you? I think it's still second person. I I don't know. I I would argue against that. Um, We'll go outside and fight. We'll go outside and fight and, you know, and then come back. Um, But they, that, when that, those two styles of narrative slowly collide at the end. That's when you can see that she's really had her mind opening up to this, you know, different perception of time. Yeah. I mean, that's like the bowl scene is, is probably the most, it's the most galvanizing from the tense standpoint. It's when I first started to notice it. Cause I wasn't really looking for that thing. Like I had watched the film. So I knew that like kind of, it was going to end up being like, I can think and I know all things, you know, but I found the bowl scene to be like when I first kind of noticed, aha, something's changing with the language here. Yeah. It's interesting. I think to compare this story to the film, because you can tell the pieces of the film that were rearranged for a Hollywood audience, which is, you know, more of a mainstream audience because there's more tension where these, um, I think they call them eggs in the film. Uh, I could be wrong. They call them mirrors in the book. But basically, you know, the aliens appear multiple locations all around the world. And it's kind of like a oh, race. the ships are there. Yeah, it's kind of like a race between the U.S. and China who's going to figure out what they're doing first. And then there's a theme in the movie where, you know, the aliens were trying to get the humans to unify. And, and you know, those are more kind of like spectacles. And, and in this book, it's interesting. Um, and we can talk more about this when we talk about tropes. Um, a common trope of the first contact genre is... 
why are the aliens here? And they kind of explain that more in the film. But in this book, it's left a little bit nebulous. And, And that would seem to be the main story problem. But what you actually realize in the end is the main story problem is, you know, what will Louise, Amy Adams' character, do when she realizes that she can see the future? Yeah. And that ends up being the the main story problem. And it kind of shifts back toward the focus on the person instead of the focus on the aliens. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the Hollywood thing because it's almost like Hollywood didn't trust that the viewers would stay engaged with a personal story. It's like we we had to make it world ending or else they were afraid people wouldn't like there's no mention of the China plot at all in this book. Right. Um, It's interesting because from the outset, the questions in a first contact story are, uh, you know, what do the aliens look like? How are they different than us? You know, if we actually do meet a different race, what would it be like? And it's always the question of, like, what do the aliens want? And so I feel like in a first contact story, the government is always involved. And that story holds true here. But they raise the stakes in the Hollywood uh, story because it's about, you know, weapons. Are they going to they're going to give us a gift? It's going to be a weapon and uh, that sort of thing. But I think that when you look at first contact stories a little closer, they're actually stories about what is humanity. And you learn that through the lens of our mass shared interaction with something new and how we react to the fact that we are not the only intelligent species in the galaxy. So through the lens of this second sentient race, that's who we understand who and what people are. And and that's the take that we're getting in this book through, you know, the this woman's experience of seeing her entire daughter's life and knowing that it ends in pain and choosing to have her daughter anyway. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit like you're talking about of War of the Worlds, um, where it is about humanity's response. And then, uh, you know, like ironically, 2020 happens to the aliens. They all get sick. And they die, right? In, in War of the Worlds, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think so. And and that's um, it's funny that you mentioned War of the Worlds because I was thinking of it as well as a good comparator to this story, which is you know a good sign when you know a story really reminds you of, of a classic in Engaged a good way. Engaged in dialogue with the classics. Like. <laughs> um, but one other comparison I saw between this story and, and War of the Worlds was there's the infamous story of the War of the Worlds radio drama oh, yeah, where yeah. people heard it and they thought that it was a news story because it sounded so realistic when they just randomly tuned into it on the radio and missed the introduction. And and I think that this story's epistolary approach where she's saying you and she's addressing, you know, her daughter at one other character specifically, it has that same feel to it. So I think that approach strangely works well in this subgenre. It, it also reminded me just real quick before we jump into the rest of it, that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, when the lockdowns were coming on, people were playing the purge audio for their boomer parents. And like, it was just their parents reaction to be like, all crime is now legal. And you see old grandma being like, Oh my goodness. Like what's happening. Like, That's mean. <laughs> it is. So uh, we talked about a couple ways that this story is similar to the first contact subgenre. So I also want to talk a little bit about ways that it deviated from it um, and ways that it, you know, kind of kind of added to it. And I think the first thing to notice about this story is that there's an impressive amount of detail in such a short piece. And I think that that's, you know, just really key to this author's style. And then something else that I think is is interesting is 
even though this book has the classic, the government is involved, the military is there, they're super secretive when they're recruiting her, it doesn't, the, the sense of escalation in this book is not, as as we compared before to the Hollywood ending, you know, the fact that war is breaking out and it's a serious risk. The escalation in this book is actually the scientific breakthrough. Yeah. And so if you're really interested in science, that's really cool because it shows that, I think I kind of know what you're trying to say. So the, like the structure is the scientific method. Like the try fail cycle, it, it reflects the scientific method where they try something and they it doesn't work, so they try something else. Like exactly, exactly. And I think that that's important for us to learn and recognize as a society because in our unfortunate misinformation culture, while we have legitimate scientists who are experts studying the coronavirus, we learn some things that we later learn are not true. We have to cope emotionally as a society with the fact that we cannot know everything about the coronavirus right away and or even this year, you know, and that's and that's very, very difficult for people to embrace. But it is a slow process. And you see that in the beginning of the story, too, when they play a clip of the aliens speaking and they say, what do you make of that? And she says, I have no context. This is not how, you know, my research works. Sounds like a dog shaking itself off. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think the biggest example of that, just, just in our world was, was the masking thing. Like early in the pandemic in like February and March, they said, don't wear masks, save them for the healthcare workers. And then they said, okay, no, actually you should wear them. It's, 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 it's good for you. And let, but then they can never get everybody on board. Cause the first thing they heard had, had, in, had informed their opinion for the rest of the whole time. Right, which is actually a specific way that human psychology works, is that you have a bias for the first thing that you learned, which makes no sense that that, that, that would be necessarily true. Yeah. So I think, uh, again, I'm supporting what you said, that this is a hard science fiction book. And so it's cool to see a first context story that is also a hard science fiction book. And it's also high concept with a pseudo time travel theme, but also very, very niche with a this is about linguistics if you couldn't tell we're about to worship this man as the uh the savior of the world so. <laughs> so i know you wanted to talk a little bit about the world building in this book and it's interesting to talk and think about world building in a story that takes place on earth and, and obviously though there are some uh other extraterrestrials coming in which is you know the the change factor um and but for science fiction specifically, world building is crucial because that is usually the primary aesthetic that places this story in the science fiction category as opposed to the fantasy category. And the world in a science fiction novel not only needs to be detailed, but also play a crucial role in the story itself. This story would be very different if it happened at a different time and place. So that kind of goes with what I was saying before about the escalation in the book is their scientific discovery, because it's interesting. We talked about in the previous episode how there's usually a character who doesn't know anything. And so you have to stop and explain it to your sidekick or maybe it's the main character is discovering the world. In this story, everyone is discovering how the aliens work. And it's done in a lot of of really great details with, um, you know, their eyes you know, being around the top of their head. So there's no forward. And those thematic things all, it's all build. foreshadowing. It's <laughs> all foreshadowing that builds into this, the circular progression of time. Um, and that also ends up being, you know, the reason, quote unquote, the aliens were there. It's, they were there because they knew they would be. 
and they are following the path of time that they already understand. So it's sort of a, a circular reasoning or explanation even there. Um, but what's also interesting is how much the world building goes hand in hand with the character development, because you know, you can call them the, the try-fail cycles, but every time there's some sort of breakthrough, you see the celebration between Louise, the linguist, and then Gary, the physicist, until you realize near the end, oh, the father, the dad of the daughter that the linguist is addressing is Gary. Yeah. And kind of has to be Gary. There's not really another character other than, you know, the, the military people. The genre is inevitable. <laughs> Who said that? I don't know. The genre is inevitable. Ooh, some smart people. Um, but I wanted to read a part that I thought... Sure. Um, was really interesting in terms of world building. Um, so this is near the beginning when they're just starting to have some of their breakthroughs. So this is Gary speaking. He's kind of repeating back a realization that Louise has explained to him. So they can read a word with equal ease, no matter how it's rotated, Gary said. He turned to look at the heptapods, impressed. I wonder if it's a consequence of their body's radial symmetry. Their bodies have no forward direction, so maybe their writing doesn't either. Highly neat. And then Louise says, I couldn't believe it. I was working with someone who modified the word neat with highly. That's something you would say for sure. Definitely. But the reason that it's hilarious is because she's a linguist. Yeah. She judges this man by the way he speaks. So it's, it's just so subtle to fit in with her character. And I think that's just such a good explanation of you have to see the world through your character's eyes. And those are the flavored reactions that you get. <laughs> Ted Chang saying, yeah, they're getting a divorce. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. It's already the foreshadowing <laughs> it's already is on point. Yeah, I mean, you basically said it. Like, even the description of the aliens has has already keyed the reader in. I mean, once you've read the story, it's obvious. Like, a lot of my students are like, "Well, I have to withhold things because it's going to surprise the reader, and I don't want them to like ruin the surprise." But but readers are never dumb, yeah. I think. And especially... I'm a little dumb. But. Well, okay. But readers are never dumb about stories. So especially readers who are also writers, because as I said before, you're going to kind of ruin books for yourself when you really start to study storytelling because you can see the things that they're setting up. And you're only going to mess it up if you don't deliver what you set up. Right. Yeah. It was vindication for me as a teacher because I was like, see, see, he's he's not trying to withhold things. We're discovering things with the reader and then he's going to tie it all together. And it was wonderful. Um, but we talked, I think, enough about the world at this point, do you think? Yeah. So obviously th this is the first book that we've read for the podcast. It's our first recording. So we don't have anything to compare it to like that we can talk about freely, I guess. But I know you're the one that's read a bunch of of, of science fiction this past year and a half. How does this book handle the protagonist's growth as compared to other books in the genre? Something uh, that I think is, is interesting to frame our conversations about protagonist growth, at least in sci-fi, is the conversation that we were talking about of, is this a book about a human or is mm -hmm. this a book about humanity? And I think that we actually don't learn very much about Louise's story before this events of this piece, which is a different take on the storytelling, because we realize that everything we're learning happens after all these anecdotes about her daughter's life, etc. And I think that's done excellently in the film, mm -hmm. because when you see the moments with her daughter, you assume that's her backstory. Yeah. But it's actually her future. Yeah. Um, which is really, really cool um, when you, you see that. And I think... Some people may have interpreted that from reading the book as well, but it's not uh, 
it's not framed in exactly that way. Um, I would make the case that this is more so a story about humanity because it addresses the themes of being a parent and having a relationship and knowing that those things are going to go wrong, but doing them anyway. Yeah. Because it's it's not about here's how this character overcomes and makes some sort of grand accomplishment and 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 there's some you know super fantastic breakthrough like we'll read the martian and that's very much a survival story about Triumph how human this guy is going to triumph and and his long journey but this is more about well why are people this way yeah why do people choose these things because if you think about it right now i mean Whenever you date someone, you're either going to break up with them or you're going to see them die. There are no two options. There's no, that's the only two options. Or you're going to die before them. Or you're going to die before them. There you go. That's You made it out. <laughs> that's the happiest one, maybe. I don't know. But, um, but we know that that's going to be the case. Yeah. And when you have a child, either you're going to see them die or they're going to see you die. This podcast is you know, going in a really optimistic direction. But if you know these things as humans. Yeah. So, you know, why do we choose to... To, to do these things and you know we're choosing everything that will come because they'll be good alongside the pain so um i think you know you can look at some of the specific details about you know who this woman is and um her voice and you know things like we just talked about it you know she sees things from a linguistics perspective etc but i think in terms of you know what kind of character story it is yeah. it really is one that speaks to bigger themes than just this specific person well i think it's a successful story in every sense because it kind of leaves you with a question without being obvious about it like would you have made the same choice it begs that question of humanity I th- in my In my story notes, he talks about um, the theme in the back. I'm going to read a little bit. It says, as for the story's theme, probably the most concise summation of what I've seen appears in Kurt Vonnegut's introduction to the 25th anniversary edition of Slaughterhouse-Five. Stephen Hawking found it tantalizing that we could not remember the future, but remembering the future is child's play for me now. I know what will become of my helpless trusting babies because they are grown-ups now. I know how my closest friends will end up because so many of them are retired or dead now. To Stephen Hawking and all others younger than myself, I say, be patient. Your future will come to you and lie down at your feet like a dog who knows and loves you no matter what you are. I mean, this passage could have been in the story, like honestly. So I, I think he's he's highly successful. And in that, it's it's such a both a dark and a comforting question, too, because just because you you know that everyone you love will either die or see you die. It doesn't cheapen the relationship at all. Yeah, exactly. And I think that something else that this story does particularly well, and I love this because it's a key source of inspiration for me when I'm writing stories, is the importance of tiny moments and how much that shapes her relationship to these broader meta narratives that she's thinking about. So picking up the salad bowl is one example, but then also telling her daughter to vacuum is another example. And these are things that just really stand out to her. And I think being able to just have a sense of wonder about your everyday life and the fact that it's, you know, just happening at all is also something to just be amazed at the fact that we're alive. You know, it's kind of like some like Carl Sagan, like, wow, like this is crazy. Like we get to live and have this experience and it you can kind of get the sense 
of that that is the main character arc in how she changes from the beginning to the end. It's kind of hard to see in the story because the, the timelines are so interesting, but it's that she is it's like her sense of wonder grows. Yeah. And because she does see her entire life at once at that point. He does such a good job of touching on like the, the quiet humanity of, of the everyday. I don't know. Did you watch the good place on Netflix? I did not know. You didn't. I, I told you I, I'm, I'm being ousted That's, as yeah. someone who does not watch very much TV. Well, it's, it's interesting because as the story goes on, like a big character one for one of the non-human characters, we'll call him. Is, he really wants to like participate in the human experience. And so much of the human experience is like getting stress balls from your company that you just shove in a drawer and you never throw away or like or losing your car keys. That was a very specific human human experience. I feel like that's how I was to quoting you. the I was quoting the show. Oh, that is <laughs> yeah. quoting the show. OK, I was like, wow, Jacob, so profound, so detailed world building. Very much. Very, very cool. Very good. No, but I mean, I have this I, I have this too. Like um, this is crazy, but I love public transit. I've never met someone else who does. But just getting on a bus is so cool to me. I, I don't like, know why. It smells like, bad in here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like the train, like I, I tried to explain it once uh, when I lived in D.C. I said I just I never lost that feeling of we the train like that you had because I mean when I was a kid and I would ride on the metro like that was my feeling and the girl that I explained that to said oh it's because you don't live on the red line I was like no I do I I live on the red line which is the oldest one so it's like the worst one but I just like the fact that there's so many people we're all going to a different place and we're all in this together but no one wants to look at each other it's just fascinating yeah yeah, I mean, it, it kind of wakes that sense of wonder, I think, in, in all of us. One other kind of illusion with an A I want to draw was to a book by a Russian author uh, called The Death of Ivan Illich by, by Leo Tolstoy. It's kind of the nihilist's answer to the question, why would you try if you knew the end? And there's a character when presented with with death in the story he thinks that's not me i'm not like that other person who died i will succeed in my pursuits i'm special you know i'm not like ivan he really made a mess of things because he wasn't like he made some really big missteps and i won't make those missteps so i i I won't die and these are just the lies that we tell ourselves at night and this way of 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 whole world whole life thinking kind of frees you from the anxiety i think of like well what if my kid dies or what if I don't get published? It, it's like, what well, it doesn't matter? Cause it's like the journey is what matters and having those little moments matter. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that that's an especially prevalent problem in today's culture where you can put anything on social media. And so you think, well, everyone could be a star, but that doesn't mean everyone should be a star. Everyone will be a star. And so you get this sense of existentialism. And I think it's subconscious because a lot of people like I've never really seen people admit that they feel this way. But I recognize that I was feeling this way when I you know, looked at someone else's Instagram and I was like, oh, I don't have, you know, perfect family life with a husband and two babies yet and I'm you know 25 and I just had these existential moments and I ended up deleting a lot of social media because I'm thinking like oh I got to get my likes and my hits and you're you're thinking like if I'm not viral mm-hmm. you don't feel valuable and, and and I don't think like we recognize that we do feel this way but I think that that's why we start to miss the joy of just existing yeah I mean some of us will fail in our pursuits We've kind of, as a culture, ascribed this status symbol of being successful. I mean, like, what do we ask each other when we go to parties back when we used to go to parties and, and, and we meet people for the first time? We say, OK, what do you do? Like, what's your job? 
and not having a job is viewed as 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 something that's that's shameful and and failing at a job is viewed as something that's 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 very shameful at least in american culture i i, th- I think that what this story really calls us to do is really take a hard look at ourselves and say what do i value and why do i value it and now that i know what i value because i've i've been introspective and asked that question and answered it am i going to change how i how i live so now that we've thoroughly depressed you um I think that just to get back into the story, we're kind of running out of time here. I know you're you're sitting on the edge of your seat and um, you know cursing at your radio, saying no, keep going. But uh, Kathleen's going to talk a little bit about the resolution and how it kind of flies in the face of some common writing advice, maybe. Yes. So I I, I am a huge fan of the ambiguous ending which a lot of people hate um, and they want it to be wrapped up in a nice little bow. I personally love the ambiguous ending and I haven't been able to pull off one that hasn't frustrated people. And I don't know if that's because I haven't nailed the technique or if people just don't like them in general. Um, but I think that this is a, a an excellent example of an ambiguous ending done well, because there's a lot of things that you still don't know by the time the story is over. You don't know exactly why Louise and Hawkeye have have broken up. Um, but part of the reason that I think it works really well is it brings you back to the beginning in a way that should seem cheesy. So what he does is he loops it all the way back into the beginning, which is a really great metaphor when you think of the theme of circles in this story. And you know, sometimes if you, you know, go all the way back to referencing your first line again, it could seem cheesy if, if you do it in, in a way that's heavy handed. Um, but I'll just read and then kind of pick apart the, the last few lines from the beginning. I knew my destination and I chose my route accordingly. But am I working toward an extreme of joy or of pain? Will I achieve a minimum or a maximum? These questions are in my mind when your father asks me, do you want to make a baby? And I smile and answer Yes. And I unwrap his arms from around me, and we hold hands as we walk inside to make love, to make you. And so I think it's fantastic to just read this piece and see the character agency. Mm-hmm. It ends on a decision. And so that is because I think, you know, in, in an ending, it, you're looking for a completeness. Yeah. And this is the finality of her change. She doesn't know if she's going toward. You're doing, yeah, that's what she said, isn't you? I can see it in your face. They're both looking for completion. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> but I think that, you know, you could say, well, wait, well, what happens next? What happens to the aliens? You know, and, and that's where you're kind of getting a lot of the ambiguity from. Yeah. But this is the character arc. She's finished it. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that the ambiguity, it's not in like an event of the story. Like the story is, 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 is whole. It's, it's complete. It's done. But the question is, is by taking the, the action to decide, I, I know that my daughter is going to fall off a mountain, right? Or a cliff. And yeah, it's, that's implied. It's I think it's just like, yeah, I think there's a nightmare where that happens. And then the mountain rescue picks her yeah, up. And yeah. And they got to go drive to the morgue or whatever. Like she knows that, and then she decides to go through with it anyway. Which it, it's also heavily implied that that sort of spells the divorce. There is that, like, I guess that Gary didn't know that she knew that, and we would have done things differently. I, I think the movie kind of goes in more to that. Yeah, and I think it's it's implied in the story where she says people who read the Book of Ages mm-hmm. never s- say that they do, which yeah. kind of says she doesn't admit that she 
has understood the heptapod language that well. And it also kind of implies that she might not be the only one because, you know, there are teams of scientists working on this issue. Right. So, you know, people who did get that far almost didn't admit that they did. It yeah. seems like that's what she's trying to say. Yeah. And I think that why the ending works well is because the ambiguity, it poses the question, what would you do? And not, and she didn't make a decision and we're, we're going to lead you up to the decision and and then not give it to you. It's like, it's complete. We see that she's going through this whole arc and now she's deciding to go through with it anyway. Right. But it, it, but then it also like, it begs the question to the reader. Would you do the same? All right. Well, I think that uh, wraps up our discussion for story of your life by Ted Chiang. And we would love to hear what you think of this book. And you can tell us on our Twitter or at all of the other places that you can find us on the internet. So next, we're going to be reading Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan. Following that, I believe we will be doing The Martian. You've been listening to The Archetypist. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash archetypist. Next episode continues our journey into the science fiction genre. Upcoming novels include Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan and The Martian by Andy Weir. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay positive, and stay connected. Archetypists, out! Archetypists, out!